How does a city rise from the ashes? Not so much meticulous planning, but more so rapid, unstructured expansion. As skyscrapers rose along Lake Michigan, the shadows grew as well. In this, the most American of cities, politics became a sport, and crime became a fine art. Under the streetlights of the Windy City, these artists would paint their masterpieces. But don't bat an eye for the fortunes won and lost. After all, money is just another way of keeping score. Welcome to Chicago, the only completely corrupt city in America. Welcome to DeLorean Nights, a podcast that travels back in time on a road trip across America. Join us as we explore unique destinations and navigate the amazing stories, people, and events that came to define them. Edward Hopper's 1942 masterpiece, Nighthawks, has been residing in the Art Institute of Chicago since its creation, with several trips to various cities on loan over the years. Commonly referred to as one of the most recognizable images of art in the 20th century, the painting depicts an all-night diner, occupied by three customers and one employee behind the counter. The fluorescent lights of the diner emit an eerie glow, as they seem to be the only lights on in the city scene. All of the surrounding buildings have gone dark. The Institute describes, quote, The viewer, drawn to the light, is shut out from the scene by a seamless wedge of glass. The four anonymous and uncommunicative night owls seem as separate and remote from the viewer as they are from one another, end quote. Many viewers have seen the painting as a rendition of loneliness and isolation within a city landscape. As one of the most famous paintings of the era, its influences can be found in many channels. There's a scene in George Roy Hill's 1973 classic, The Sting, a film that follows two grifters in 1930s Chicago as they pull off the biggest score of their career. The memorable scene takes place late at night in a diner right out of Hopper's painting. The leading man, Robert Redford, in his prime, talks to the lone waitress on duty. As his courtship gets more obvious, she points out that he doesn't even know her. You know me, I'm just like you, he responds. It's two in the morning and I don't know no one. The allure of the city landscape lit by street lamp and the hustlers and drifters that pass by makes a confidence man a staple in the American archetype. Redford and Newman sizzled on screen in The Sting, playing their mark throughout 1930 Chicago to the soundtrack of Scott Joplin's Ragtime. They represented the golden age of the grift, though they were hardly the first examples in Hollywood. Henry Hill was a traveling con man bringing his scam to River City in the popular play The Music Man. Nathan Detroit and Sky Masterson rub elbows with gamblers of all shapes and sizes as they float through cabarets and back alley crap games of New York City in Guys and Dolls. The heist movie, like the Western, has become a staple of American cinema with Hollywood's biggest stars headlining the roles of suave confidence men and riverboat gamblers. From George Clooney to Steve McQueen, many leading men have portrayed the streetwise gamblers or smooth hustler archetype. 
These are the beautiful criminals you can't help but cheer for. Impeccably dressed, with the sharpest minds in the room, these hustlers were human sharks, feasting on the naive sucker looking for what they thought was easy money. One of the most famous con men that ever lived, and we'll get to him later, used to always say he'd never scammed an honest man. People were always looking for something for nothing, he said. I just gave them nothing for something. Now the destination for tonight's episode was the perfect time period and perfect city for these sharks to feast. What the Caribbean waters off Tortuga in 1650 were for pirates, or what Dodge City in the 1870s was for gunslingers and frontiersmen, Chicago in the early 20th century was just that for confidence men. Why? A conversion of social and technological factors. Machines were replacing farms, and jobs became readily available in the cities. As the cities expanded and their density multiplied, their allure only grew in the minds of the rural communities. What better place to find some action than the big city? Cars, pubs, electric lights. The gap in lifestyle between the city and the towns that surrounded them was growing wider by the day. Taverns, pool halls, and racetracks. All the action anyone could ask for. And many of these visitors had the two attributes that made them the perfect mark. They had money to squeeze, and they were only passing through town. The Windy City attracted a never-ending string of visitors. Chicago had longed to step into the same spotlight as the coastal metropolises they saw as rivals. You could say this concerted effort began with the World's Fair in 1893. Chicago wanted to reintroduce itself to the world, the second city coming out after the Great Fire burned it to the ground. The popularity and impact of the World's Fair is well documented. Its main attraction, an exposition known as the White City, was a prototype of what leading planners in the world thought a city should be. Legendary architects designed the temporary structures, the buildings, canals, and lagoons, all centered around a giant reflecting pool. Among the 27 million visitors to come through the gate was a young Walt Disney. It was here that the first seed was planted in his mind. He had his first glimpse of his destiny while gazing upon the grandeur of the exposition. It would serve as the foundation of the Magic Kingdom, a pristine and wondrous city of dreams. For Chicago itself, this coming out party was an unabashed success. The World's Fair was the beacon of American exceptionalism, and it took place not in New York or Los Angeles, but in Chicago. The fair sparked the rapid urbanization of the South Side, and all along the lake. A new elevated train and housing blocks were constructed for the fair's employees. Hotels sprung up near the park to accommodate the oncoming flood of guests. As the century turned, Chicago continued to reap the benefits of massive growth, but it also had to juggle the many problems that came with it. Politicians and city leaders believed that the battle for the soul of the city would soon reach a crescendo. Densely populated cities were most susceptible to the pull of vices. Chicago was ground zero for this, known as the, quote, city of superlatives, at once both spectacular and foul, end quote. For example, quote, the lake was a kaleidoscope of majestic blues and greens, the river rat-infested filth, end quote. With more people pouring into the city, filling the neighborhoods to the brim, all of their waste and grime would soon spill into the river and downstream into beautiful Lake Michigan. 
diseases such as cholera and typhoid were beginning to spread. The city's population had exploded, but the features expanded too quickly for a consistent plan and layout to be executed. Neighborhoods were disconnected by railroads, buildings were clustered around trafficked areas with no thought to the flow of commuters or for sanitation. It was a chaotic maze of railroads and streets peppered with wood and stone structures. There was no uniformity to the layout. In one of the great engineering feats of history, a 28-mile-long canal would soon reverse the flow of the mighty Chicago River, sending the waste from Chicago's tenements, factories, and slaughterhouses west to the Mississippi River instead of into Lake Michigan. A great vision of the city's future was promulgated by the leading politicians in a daring and sweeping civic plan. This plan of Chicago, as it became known, was originally created by the architect of the World's Fair. It featured an exorbitant budget to convert the city into a model of urban unity, more beautiful than the great urban centers of Europe. This plan consisted of redeveloping the waterfront along Lake Michigan, winding the roads throughout the city, and lightening up the railway system. Advocates of the plan of Chicago hoped that an organized layout would create a sense of community, quote, reducing the social conflict and bringing out the best in all of its residents, end quote. No one was a bigger promoter of the plan of Chicago than Big Bill Thompson, the brash and outspoken mayor. A self-described man of the people, the barrel-chested showman always delivered an entertaining show at any speaking engagement. My greatest desire, seconded by my ambition to achieve constructive results, is that no shadow of corruption, dishonesty, or wrongdoing shall cloud any of the varied and multidisciplinary activities of the city government during my term of office. It is my business and yours to safeguard Chicago's interests and to protect the life, liberty, personal, and property rights of its citizens under the constitutions of the United States. The state of Illinois and the laws of force which each of us have solemnly sworn to support. During the early 1900s, Chicago was described as a growing collection of eccentrics, artists, and writers. It promised to be a second London, or the Paris of the Prairie, but the Windy City, for one reason or another, blew the artists toward the coasts. Bowling alleys and bars increased. Bookshops did not. The bars and bowling alleys were soon joined by gambling parlors, opium dens, and brothels. Brothels so outlandish that, quote, inmates dangled bare breasts from windows and did unspeakable things with animals, end quote. It's a crucial point in the history of Chicago. On one hand, you've got skyscrapers, designed by the most famous builders and visionaries of modern times, reaching toward the heavens. And at the very same time, you've got crime, gangs, racial tension, and rampant lawlessness pulling the city down to hell. At least this was according to the church-going, buttoned-up community. But as the Great War ended and the 1920s approached, the downtown Loop District buzzed with money and jobs, home to the Chicago Board of Trade Building. Forget Wall Street, it was in the heart of Chicago that the world moved. Wheat, corn, hogs, lumber, cattle, and oats. Commodities were the lifeblood of civilization, and they traded in downtown Chicago. And vice was the lifeblood of the South Side, and the brothels and taverns buzzed in a similar manner. The confidence men that we spoke of before 
are the tightropers of this duplicitous Chicago. The city of dreams and nightmares. Or to use a more 80s appropriate metaphor, they were will buyers in Stranger Things, able to pass from the real world to the upside down. They made their living rubbing elbows with high society, representing the class and education needed to make people trust them. But in their hearts, they were just as comfortable in the city underworld of Chicago's back alleys. In fact, most of the spoils they earned from the marks in the fancy part of town were soon spent in the brothels, bars, and pool rooms across the tracks. The golden age of the confidence man peaked from 1914 to 1923. It unfolded in direct correlation with economic prosperity, as America was entering the post-war boom. Quote, it was a period of unprecedented prosperity for the American upper middle class, dentists and wholesale grocers, whose fathers had been blacksmiths and coopers, were making fortunes, apparently without effort, in a stock market that appeared to have defeated the law of gravity. Often enough, such types were persuaded that their success was owed to their own perspicacity, rather than to luck or general trends. End quote. Technology also made this the perfect time period for the con, or more specifically the lack of technology. Telegrams and the information they carried would lag or could be manipulated easily. Word couldn't spread the same way it can today. Confidence men could shear their sheep, often in the very same spot, and continue to base in the safety of anonymity. Personally, the allure of the confidence man rests on two key characteristics. One, there's always something charismatic about the smart criminal over the brute. A fox is more likable than a bear. Any goon can mug someone for their money, but to obtain your loot through guile and wit now that's impressive. Second, it helps immensely when the victims are not totally innocent. The marks of a confidence game, at least in our folklore, are always getting their comeuppance. They expose their weakness, greed, and they're exploited for it. Confidence men were the modern day Robin Hoods. While American folklore turned away from the outlaws of the West as the frontier began to close and overpopulate, the city smart confidence man was the natural evolution. Now that we are fully diving into the world of the confidence artist, I'm going to be citing the work of David Maurer. He was a linguistic professor, and his masterpiece, The Big Con, remains the pivotal book on the underworld. He gained the trust of hundreds of criminals, hustlers, and grifters to create a detailed history of the confidence game, along with a full translation of their common terms. This book was the inspiration for The Sting, right down to the names of the characters. Like the evolution of the Windy City itself, the confidence game grew over time. It started off small, with what was known as a short con. As grifters descended into the city, following the money, they began to use stores as their base of operation. These were called mitt stores, and they masqueraded behind the front of a legitimate business. Much like the speakeasy, these were often sample rooms for wholesale items. The mark, as you probably can tell, this was con man lingo for victim, would be steered into the mitt store under legitimate pretenses, a great deal on fabric or farming equipment for sale. The mark would just have to wait a few minutes for the proprietor or manager to arrive. A couple others would be seated at the table, playing a friendly game of cards to pass the time. Maybe it was a game of three card money. Whatever it was, the mark would be lured into joining them. Unsuspectingly, he was at the table with the sharpest guys in town who would proceed to fleece him for all of his money before he knew what hit him. Now this was a simple con game, 
lure the sucker in, beat him out of his money. But the game was about to get more sophisticated. Maurer writes that before the turn of the century, quote, confidence men did not realize that they were destined to become the aristocrats of crime. They did not visualize a smoothly working machine, its political cogs well greased with bribe money, and its essential parts composed of slick expert professionals, end quote. During the operation of the mitt stores, local cops were given tips to look the other way, but soon it would grow into what was known as the fix. As Maurer says, quote, the fix was a simple transaction between con men and officers, with influential shopkeepers or politicians occasionally acting as intermediaries in difficult cases. In New York, and especially Chicago, there were hordes of gamblers, thieves, grifters, and short con workers. These men naturally made saloons their headquarters, came to know the proprietors, and the machinery of the fix was established. End quote. Now what was the issue, or weakness, of the mitt store? Mostly, the mark could only be fleeced for the money he had on him. He was unwittingly steered into the store, without the original intent to gamble. Maurer talks of the seismic shift in the con game, as the artist eventually learned to play the mark against the store, and not against other players. The store was only the location for the game, not an integral participant. Now before we get into the evolution of the big con game, I wanted to stop here and introduce one of our main characters of this story. You could say he was the best ever at these so-called short con games. He didn't operate out of a mitt store, he just followed the action wherever and whenever it came about. He naturally ended up in Chicago. His name was Alvin Clarence Thompson, but most people knew him as Titanic. Why? Because he sank everyone. This road gambler moved from town to town and naturally ended up in the Windy City. That's where the action was and Titanic was revered by his friends as the greatest action man of all time. He was the man that bet on everything. With the eyes of a hawk and the steel nerves to go with it, he could take down anyone at the poker table. But it wasn't just cards. We could focus on his specialty, but he didn't have one. He beat a chess master out of a small fortune. He bet that he could throw a key into a keyhole from across the room, or toss 50 out of 52 cards into a hat from a similar distance. One of his favorite cons was betting people he could hurl various pieces of fruit or an acorn over five-story buildings. Did he accomplish these feats solely on his natural skill and acumen? Of course not. He'd mark cards and deal from the bottom of the deck. Both of these slights were completed with such a feathery touch that even the most hardened card shark couldn't spot them. His chess game? Easy when a chess ace he hired was watching the game through a peephole in the ceiling and signaling his moves. How was he able to throw animate objects greater distances than most big leaguers? He had a hell of an arm, but it also helped that the unsuspecting item of choice was loaded with lead pellets or buckshot to increase the weight, making it easier to toss a distance. No matter how random the subject of the wager appeared to be, Titanic always had an edge. Upon leaving a tavern after a night of boozing and cards, he bet his friends on license plate numbers of the cars passing by. The numbers on the plates represented poker hands. They didn't realize that Titanic had hired a car to drive past them on his signal. This car's license plate obviously had the winning hand. Now as Titanic Thompson explored the intoxicating scene of Chicago, taking in the jazz music on the south side at the Lincoln Gardens, he would have heard a young Louis Armstrong blowing his tunes. He would gaze up at the massive skyscrapers being constructed along Lake Michigan and the hundreds of construction workers shoveling in and out on the L train, to and from work. 
He salivated at the endless string of cruise ships steaming past the Chicago River. The grand hotels with uniformed busboys greeting all visitors. So much money was here, so much action. He was witnessing the plan of Chicago in action, the creation of the great urban metropolis. On his arrival in the Windy City, Thompson met up with the most famous gambler in the world, Nick the Greek Danilos, who would win and lose countless fortunes throughout his legendary life. He was known for his impeccable fashion, always seen in tailor suits with diamond-studded cufflinks. He would gamble for days straight without sleeping, and his escapades on the racetracks were well known from Monte Carlo to Hong Kong. Thompson and the Greek had the time of their lives fleecing oilmen, titans of industry, and any underworld figure who sat down at the table. Any millionaires that frequented the poker tables of Chicago would eventually be led to Thompson and the Greek. The Greek knew everyone in town, and he lined up these games seemingly every night of the week. One day, Nick took Thompson to the Palace Music Hall to meet his buddy Harry. Nick told Thompson that Harry was a miracle worker like him. This was an odd way to describe Harry Houdini, who had dazzled the world with his magic and nightly acts of escape from impossible situations. Houdini had launched his career in Chicago. It was, of course, at the mythical 1893 World's Fair. Now Houdini was backstage with Thompson, and they showed each other their favorite card tricks. They were pleasantly surprised to find out that many of them were the same. Thompson stayed to watch his sold-out show, impressed but not amazed with the act. Thompson completed similar acts of magic nightly at the poker table. Now as renowned as Houdini was at the time, he couldn't hold a candle in Chicago to the other celebrity Thompson would soon cross paths with. In order to sustain a life of high-stakes card games, the right people had to be paid off here and there. There was always the chance that his game could get robbed. Some thug could be tipped off about heavy action and decide to rob the winner on his way home. Immersed in the underworld, these protection payments eventually filter their way to the top of the Chicago criminal enterprise. And in the fabled gangland of Chicago, with prohibition on the horizon, the reputation of one Al Capone began to rise. That's where Thompson's protection money ended up. While typically getting his gambling fix on horses and baseball, Capone was drawn to Thompson. Word began to spread of his run with Nick the Greek. He wanted in on the action. Now Thompson was as street smart and calculating as they came, and he knew the risk that came with keeping company with gangsters like Al Capone. Capone's reputation was renowned even for a tough guy. Thompson was smart enough to know not to bite the hand that was feeding him, or in this case the hand that was protecting him. But sometimes you can't change who you are, no matter what the risk is. You know the story of the scorpion and the toad. Well, Thompson was a scorpion through and through. And he would soon take his shot at Capone. But we'll get to that a little bit later. Thompson's game, no matter how good he was at his craft, still represented what was known as a short con. And while he was an absolute savant, the con game was evolving. He was more than happy to continue to feast his way but the short con would soon be overshadowed by the big con. And as we mentioned before, one of the major shortfalls of the short con was that you could only fleece the mark for what he had on him, and he was always going up against other players. To an ace like Titanic Thompson, this was no problem, but for a typical hustler, this could prove to be risky and less lucrative. While Titanic Thompson was working the card games in pool halls all over Chicago, another legendary con man was perfecting his own craft. 
Games of chance were not his game of choice, however. There were plenty of ways to relieve a sucker of his not-so-hard-earned money. Joseph Weil would frequent the hotel lobbies along Michigan Avenue, always impressively dressed. Tailored suit, perfectly trimmed beard, fancy yellow gloves, and a walking stick, Weil oozed class and intelligence. The spectacles didn't hurt either. He would strike up casual conversations with fellow citizens. He began speaking about his trade and quickly demonstrated an expertise in his field. Whether it was stocks, oil, or land development, the premise was simple. He'd be moaned to the mark about a predicament he was in. He was in the process of making a deal worth millions, but had come up a few thousand short of the purchase price. He'd exchange pleasantries with the man, thank him for the conversation, and be on his way. This was what was known as the tale. Intrigued but not yet hooked, the mark would continue the conversation with others around him. Do you know who that was? Someone would ask. The mark did not. He's a world-famous engineer. I just read about him in a magazine. Further intrigued, the mark would head to the library to check out the magazine. Sure enough, Mr. Wilde's picture would be there, in an article touting his knowledge and business sense. Now the mark was properly hooked. He'd invest a final portion with him, and was certain that the returns would be as lucrative as promised. Weil loved to bamboozle the wealthy, not just because of the size of the potential score, but because successful professionals were the most gullible. They thought of themselves as too wise to be duped. This poor sucker, for instance, after not receiving his investment back and unable to find Mr. Weil, would maybe go back to the same library to check out that magazine. Only this time he finds the same article with a different picture, the real chief engineer. Weil had replaced the magazine with a forged copy and eventually put the original back. Weil, who had come to be known as the Yellow Kid based on a popular comic at the time, would write the book on how to execute the big con. He was a master actor and would perfect his craft all over his native Chicago. In addition to bank lobbies and other financial hangouts of downtown Chicago, Weil could also be found at the local horse racing track, just like any con man worth his weight. If Titanic Thompson and the Yellow Kid ever did cross paths, it likely would have been at the track. Horse racing was Thompson's greatest weakness. He could never quite gain the edge he always had in other games. As much as he won at poker, dice, golf, and anything else, he'd pour about the same out onto the racetrack. He told an incredible story that encapsulated his relationship with horse racing. Once he bribed all of the jockeys in a particular race to dump, he put a small fortune on the long shot, the only jockey not incentivized to lose, and sat down to watch a sure thing. With the other jockeys riding as slow as possible, his horse rounded the stretch in the lead. A few lengths before the finish line, the horse collapsed on the track with a broken leg. The other jockeys scrambled to stop their horses completely, desperately trying not to win. One of them finally crossed the finish line. Titanic couldn't even win a fixed race. Weil was a little more successful at the track, he purchased an impressive-looking thoroughbred. Unfortunately, this horse was what was called a morning glory. This means that it looks awesome in its morning workouts, but for some reason drags in afternoon races. Wow would lure marks to the morning workouts and boast of the speed of his colt. He then spun a tale that he had another horse that looked exactly like it, another, much slower horse. He had entered the slower horse in a race. When the odds would get low enough, he was going to switch the slow horse for the faster twin and rake in the winnings. 
On race day, he and his marks would place their bets on his horse. But obviously, there was no second horse. The morning glory would go on the lose, as it always did. Luckily, the marks and Wilde himself had placed their bets with his partner, disguised as a betting agent. The marks never realized this betrayal, since they simply thought they had placed a legitimate bet on a losing horse. As fruitful as this game was for Wilde, it wasn't something he could do consistently and it was still small potatoes to what the Big Con would eventually yield in its apex. The most famous Big Con game, known as The Wire, was reported to be played for scores of $200,000 on the regular. By Wiles' time, the Mitt and Monty stores had evolved. Now conmen would host fake prize fights or foot races. The Roper, or the con then who lowered the mark, would act as a disgruntled fight promoter. Sick of his job, he had convinced a fighter to take a dive and wanted to take a huge score off his boss before he skipped town. But he needed someone to make the bet, since it would be suspicious if he did it himself. That's where the mark came in. Seeing a chance at easy money, he would lay the bet. His boxer would then take an unexpected hook to the face, crumble to the canvas, spitting blood all over the ring. The house doctor would declare him dead. Chaos would ensue. Prize fighting was illegal prior to the turn of the century, and no one wanted to get caught up in an underground fight that killed a guy. The mark would be blown off, as it was called, thinking he lost a bet but got away from the law. Of course, this was all fake. The boxer spit out chicken blood when he was tagged. The promoter, his boss, the crowd, the house doctor, the referee, all part of the con. The legalization of boxing led to the death of the boxing store, but the premise would soon be incorporated into the best of the big con games. The other ingredient needed? The telegraph. The early 1900s was a time when Western Union ruled the country, sending any and all news from coast to coast across the wire. Among the information crossing the country was the horse racing results. This was a time before Babe Ruth stepped to the plate to call the shot and cemented baseball as America's pastime. Even boxing hadn't quite hit its stride. The days of Jack Dempsey and Joe Lewis had yet to come. Horse racing, the sport of kings, ruled the country. By the turn of the century, there were almost 300 tracks in America. But with the temperance movement gaining steam, along with it came Puritans of all kinds pushing legislation against all forms of vice. Remember again, this was a battle for Chicago's soul. This included horse racing and the rampant gambling attached to it. The six tracks scattered around Chicago constantly fought local politicians and councilmen, itching to shut down their doors. Sometimes they won, sometimes they didn't. But making gambling and racing illegal at the track did little to stop people from playing the ponies. If the city wouldn't supply its citizens with the rush of the thoroughbred and some heavy action on the winners, the underworld would be happy to supply. This was the rise of the pool room, the name given to off-track betting parlors. A great pool room was heaven for an action man. An innocuous alleyway, a random basement door in a dilapidated building, would lead an eager gambler into another world. Rich mahogany furniture, plush seating, the air congested with high-end cigars and fine scotch. There was a giant blackboard on the wall, with a man in a three-piece suit sliding back and forth on a ladder, updating the racing results. Over the loudspeaker, an announcer emphatically calls the race as the play-by-play -play comes through on the wire. The patrons shout and encourage their horses as the announcer calls them down the home stretch. Losing tickets are dramatically torn up, while the winners dance to the betting booths to collect their prizes. $10,000, $20,000 bets are won and lost in the blink of an eye. 
The pool room was intoxicating to a gambler and would turn out to be irresistible to a mark as well. Now conning people utilizing Western Union and the telegraph began simply enough. Urban legends arose that machines could tap into the telegraph lines and get race information before the bookmakers. Unemployed telegraph operators traveled the country, toting the ability to tap into the telegraph wire, then hold up the race results long enough for a partner to rush to the pool room to get a bet in. Little did the house know they were betting on a race that already ran, a sure thing. Now whether these disgruntled telegraph operators, or the tapping machines themselves, did or did not actually exist is up for debate. It's likely that some were genuine, and others were frauds. But this didn't matter. Master Swindlers, and Joseph Weil, the Master Swindler, took this premise and blended it with the store game. And boom, the wire was born. The big con had arisen. Now if you've seen The Sting, you know the rest of the story. Hopefully you love it as much as I do, so you won't mind hearing it again. For those that haven't seen it, please go see it. It's a classic. I would actually stop listening to this right now and go watch it. Okay, the wire works like this. You already know the term roper. This is the con man that brings in the mark. A likable, seemingly honest guy that you meet in a hotel lobby or train station or any place where working honest people may frequent. He often meets the mark on a completely unrelated matter and gains his trust. But eventually he plants the seeds of the tale. He speaks of his friend or cousin, or whatever, who works for Western Union. They drop by his office. This is the inside man. He's oftentimes more talented than the roper. He comes off with a sincerity and trustworthiness few can imitate. The inside man tells them that an inspector is due in his office any minute. He'll meet them in the hotel lobby bar where they're staying. The mark doesn't suspect that the Western Union office he was just in was fake. Sometimes, the greatest of con men would somehow sneak into real Western Union offices to really hammer home their authenticity. The inside man soon arrives in street clothes. They all share a beer, and he spins the tale. He's ready to retire. Western Union is a heartless, soul-sucking corporation. He's been ignored, passed over for promotion, and stepped on by the higher-ups for years. He's ready to retire, but not before he leaves with the severance. Through his office passes all of the race results from tracks across the country. Pool room operators, lords of the underworld, are growing fat on the hard-earned money of the people. But he figured out a way to game the system. He could hold up the race results, only for a few minutes, but long enough for him to phone a friend and get in a bet. A hearty profit would be theirs for the taking. And with vast sums of money coming in and out of the pool rooms, no one would notice. There would be no victims. Well, no innocent victims. The rich bookmakers would get clipped, but would barely notice. It would be a mosquito bite on a rhinoceros. The mark is enticed enough to check out the pool room and run through a test. He and the roper head to the address provided by the inside man. This is one of the classiest pool rooms of all of Chicago, where five-figure bets are paid out without anyone batting an eye. While taking in the scene, the mark notices a safe behind the betting window. The clerk shoves a stack of bills into it, only to come back to the window for more. If he were really paying attention, he would see that the stacks given to the window were simply recycled around for the next guy in line. The safe had a hatch in the back. The illusion of unlimited stacks of cash being tossed around were crucial to set the mood for the mark. The atmosphere of action has him hooked. He goes outside to the payphone at the corner, 
It rings. He answers. Take War Admiral to win the third race at Saratoga. The voice on the other line instructs him. He goes back inside and rushes to the betting window. $20 on War Admiral. He gets his ticket and grabs a seat. He once again takes in the scene. As Maurer writes, quote, The same air of dignified, restrained feverishness prevails. No one seems to notice them. They look the crowd over. It's not large, but it is sporty. Brokers with pasty faces. Sportsmen, tanned and casual. A financier with Van Dyke and highly tailored clothes. The thick blue haze wherein mingle the silver streams from a dozen fine cigars. End quote. The announcer blares, they're off. The crowd stirs as jockeys lead their horses around the turn and into the stretch. It's War Admiral by three lengths. Holy shit, it worked. The mark is fired up with greed. He's ready to lay down a fortune. He can't lose, but he wants to test it one more time. No measly $10. He'll put a hundred on the next race. He goes back to the phone and gets the instruction. He runs back inside, but this time the crowd inside has grown and there are four people ahead of him in line. Three minutes to post time, the announcer drones. The bettors in front of him are throwing huge wads of cash down, and it's taking the cashier forever to sort out the fifties from the hundreds. The mark tries to hurry the line along. He's next up, but another big bet is in front of him. Right before he reaches the counter, the announcer shouts out, and they're off. The cashier waves his hand. All betting is closed. The mark plops down in his chair, upset with his missed opportunity. He was so close to a month's pay right in his pocket. To make matters worse, he has to listen to the announcer emphatically describe a horse's late charge from the rear to take the win by a nose. It is, of course, the horse he would have bet on. But in reality, he would have never gotten to the front of the line. He'd been given the shutout. You don't want the mark handling too much profit, just in case he got cold feet and skipped town. While this rarely happened, it was wise to mitigate the risk. Plus, being so close to a payday only whetted his appetite. The trio reconvenes that night. The roper and the mark tell the inside man how smoothly the test had went. Well, besides not quite getting to the front of the window for the second race, but no matter, the big score was coming. The mark emptied his bank account, maybe cashed in some bonds or stocks he had stashed, or even remortgages his house. This was the deal of a lifetime. When all the money was finally secured, they went back to the payphone by the pool room. Now listen carefully. The voice on the other line says, Now I've got a winner. Place your bet on Red Lightning, the second race at Belmont. The mark basically sprints to the pool room with the roper trying to keep up. Red Lightning is going off at 5-1. to one. Thank God the line at the betting booth is minuscule. Red Lightning to win, the mark belts out. $25,000. They assume their position and wait for the announcer to call those magical words. He does. The next two minutes are pulse pounding. Fourth by ahead, Mr. Bones is fifth ahead, and Grand Manitou. See, Biscuit is on the inside. And now Rosemont is moving into contention. It's a special agent in front by one length. See, Biscuit is second the length and one half. Don Roberto is third by three quarters of a length. Indian Broom is fourth, and Rosemont is fifth. Here comes time supply. End of the stretch, it's Seabiscuit on the outside, by a head, special agent is second by three quarters of a length, Indian Broom is third, and Rosemont is fourth, and it's going to be a driving finish between Seabiscuit and Rosemont, and they're going to cross the line of finish now, Rosemont and win it! Red Lightning lags to start, but makes his move around the turn. 
Down the stretch, he closes in on the winner. Three lengths behind the leader. Two, one. But the finish line interrupts the furious charge. Red Lightning ran out of room and lost the race by a hair. Confused, in shock, and probably nauseous and ready to pull out his hair, the mark has helped outside for some fresh air. He's ready to kill the roper. What the hell happened? They meet up with the inside man. You idiot, the inside man barks at him. I said place it on Red Lightning. Don't you know what place means? The horse was going to run second. It's a play on words. Place the bet is what the mark thought. But the term place means bet to finish second. Now if they play it correctly, the mark can be squeezed for even more money. They can convince him the mistake was just a fluke and chalk it up to a simple misunderstanding. He scrounges up some more loot and goes through the same routine. His horse finally wins, but wait a minute, the announcer says. There was a complaint registered during the race. The jockey committed a foul. The horse is disqualified. The mark is perplexed. How can this happen again? The inside man is devastated. Worse, detectives within the Western Union are investigating him, tipped off at the delay in the racing wire. They all better go on the land before they're put behind bars. The inside man gives the mark $20 to buy a train ticket out of town. What a great guy, the mark thinks as he sulks home, gifting him money despite the fact that he ruined his retirement plans. This was the big con. It could be played in different ways, with stocks instead of horses, with the tail altered slightly to better fit the mark. The pool rooms operated constantly, with ropers bringing marks in one after another. Now before we finish up tonight's story, we promise to tell the tale of how Titanic Thompson, the greatest action man of all time, took his shot at Al Capone. Now we mentioned that Thompson was as street smart as they came, so he knew full well what crossing a man like Capone would cost him. This was a man that ran the city and was protecting him from any number of local heavies that would jump at an opportunity to rob his poker game or merely get some payback for being taken as a sucker. But, as we previously said, the fable of the frog and the scorpion, Thompson simply couldn't resist. It was in his blood. After joining his partners and handling a room full of Southside thugs in an all-night session of five-card stud, Capone and Thompson were walking down the street, counting their winnings and laughing about their victims. They sauntered by a fruit stand opening up for the morning commuters. Titanic stopped and bought a lemon. He told Capone that he had a hell of an arm, a major league caliber arm. I'll bet you $500 I can toss this lemon over the five-story hotel across the street. Of course, this was one of Thompson's tried and true cons. He planted a lemon full of buckshot with the food vendor the day before. With the extra weight, he could easily clear the roof of the hotel. Capone was game. They had themselves a bet. Thompson smiled and reached back to make his throw. Hold on a second, Capone barked. Even the cold-blooded Titanic Thompson, who never froze under pressure, must have felt his pulse quicken ever so slightly. Use this one, Capone exclaimed. He bought his own lemon, squeezed it out, and handed it to Thompson. The mighty scar-faced Capone would not go down easily. Thompson hadn't counted on this move. But he took a breath, adjusted his stance, then reeled back and heaved the lemon as far as he could. It sailed over the roof of the hotel, clearing it with ease. You are one versatile son of a bitch, Capone exclaimed. And he handed over $500. Capone didn't realize how accurate that statement actually was. 
Thompson slid the money into his pocket, right next to the squeezed-out lemon Capone had given him. It was a simple trick. He switched it out on the wind-up. His pal Harry Houdini would have nodded with appreciation at the sleight of hand. Thompson bid Capone farewell and soon packed his bags and headed out of Chicago. He'd bilk Chicago for what he could, and now he read the tea leaves and decided to head to Union Station and get the next train out of town. California held the promise of fresh action and plenty of naive Westerners with money to lose. We mentioned throughout tonight's episode that there was a duality to the early 20th century Chicago. You had the rising metropolis and the Northside Financial Center with its illustrious buildings. You had the front of post-war wealth and prosperity. The Chicago plan was going to bring the city into the future. The Paris of the Prairie would soon rise above its compatriots. But at the same time, you had a seedy underbelly of vice. Brothels, gambling halls, all types of vice. There were rampant racial tensions, beatings and bombings, and several instances of full-blown riots. Now don't mistake this duality for good and bad, or victim and perpetrator. This can be murky, like anything in life. Like the market of confidence game, how much of Chicago's misfortune was its own undoing? The bankers and company men, so used to high margins, would spend like the well wouldn't run dry, and often set themselves up for the grift. The same can be said for city officials. On a momentous day in 1920, to the roar of a crowd and a thunderous parade, the mayor opened the Michigan Avenue Bridge. Another milestone of the Chicago plan had come to fruition. This was the largest double-decker drawbridge in the world. And now the north side and south side of Chicago were adequately linked. To do so had come at an immense cost. The boulevard had to be widened, and property had to be seized in order to do so. After settling the lawsuits and eminent domain proceedings, construction had completed, and the mayor hailed a united Chicago. But like the war babies that stumbled to the track and pool rooms following a hot tip on an easy score, the city had gone in way over its head. It had broken the bank on infrastructure and left the well completely dry. In rapidly trying to construct the Chicago of the future, they were ill-prepared when the future finally arrived. While the Temperest and Decency Committees would soon hail victory with the Volstead Act and the closure of racetracks and pool rooms throughout Chicago, little did they know that the war on vice was far from over. In fact, they were merely aiding in the consolidation of the underworld. By pushing it all underground, it was about to boil up and fire out like a geyser. Al Capone, though $500 lighter, would rise with a fury. His syndicate would rule over Chicago with an iron fist. Mayors and councilmen would bow to him. Baseball's most famous players would ask for his autograph, and opponents would be dealt with swiftly and ruthlessly. The Chicago of the 1920s was written as, quote, a Chicago where city officials and underworld gangsters worked hand-in-hand to bootleg liquor, run prostitution and protection rackets, and win elections, end quote. It was said that Capone had three pictures hanging in his office wall, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Big Bill Thompson, the mayor of Chicago. When Thompson passed away after serving for over a decade as mayor, his estate was found to have more than $1 million in cash, large bills stuffed into various hidden safety deposit boxes. Maybe he was the inside man, and the voters and donors that represented his base were the mark. You could say the battle for Chicago continues to rage today. Joseph Weil, the yellow kid, wrote an autobiography. In it, he lamented the fall of the con man and their unique artistry. 
He wrote that today's con man was more inclined to enter the world of banking and politics. Within these professions, they're able to perform the same tales and tricks to fleece their marks, but this time it's just within the limits of the law rather than outside of them. But who would heed the warnings of a two-bit con artist? Well, as the yellow kid would always say, if he's good, everyone. And besides, the Chicago machine had a bridge to sell us. We've got several sources of this episode. The first is a book called The Big Con, The Story of the Confidence Man by David Maurer. The next is a biography called Titanic Thompson, The Man Who Bet on Everything by Kevin Cook. The next is a book called City of Scoundrels, The 12 Days of Disaster That Gave Birth to Modern Chicago. That's by Gary Christ. And finally, Players, Con Men, Hustlers, Gamblers, and Scam Artists by Gino Zanetti and Stephen Hyde. Special thanks to the production team of Van Vorst Films, who produce and edit this podcast. Until next time, thank you for joining us tonight, and hopefully we'll see you in the future. <laughs>